Recovery Elevator, episode 115. I would always set these new things, well, when this happens, I'll just quit. No plan on how I was going to quit or why. It was just, well, I'll just quit because, you know, I'm moving and I'm going to school, I'm graduating, and this, I mean, nothing ever worked. And then when it didn't work, I think I was more defeated, so I would just fall deeper into it. Kind of abandon more hope every time it didn't happen. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years and seven months. On today's podcast, we've got Julie. She's 35 years old. She's from Ohio, and she's been sober for 92 days. Okay, let's get started. The topic for today is big alcohol, otherwise known as the companies that don't give a shit if we drink ourselves to death also known as the companies that will put 100% of the blame on the individual who drinks themselves to death. Again, this podcast, it is not a diatribe against alcohol. If you are listening and you're a normal drinker, then drink one or maybe 50 for me. How is it that the vast damage that the drug alcohol does to millions of individuals and to our society as a whole has gone effectively unchallenged? Grapes have been fermented, beer has been brewed, and whiskey distilled for hundreds, even thousands of years. Through the ages, alcohol has been the drug of choice for humankind, and every passing year adds new pages to the catalog of horrors related to its use. But now, with the scientific advances of the last 50 years, we know why certain people become addicted to alcohol and what can be done to help them. So why does the misery continue unabated? Why, now that we understand the full extent of alcohol's dark side, has there been no concerted effort to stem the bloody tide? Well, throughout history, there have been many reasons for our silence. Certainly, the stigma of alcoholism has been a factor as people have been taught to blame the drinker and not the drug for alcohol-related problems. Ignorance about the physical nature of the disease has played a major role too, as have denial and reluctance to pin the label alcoholic on fine, upstanding citizens. Now, you've heard me say on this podcast before that I'm breaking up with the word alcoholic, and I still feel that way. I personally don't feel the word alcoholic or the label alcoholic is beneficial to those in recovery. When I go to AA meetings, I say, yeah, hey, I'm Paul and I'm an alcoholic. But if you really think about it, if this is a disease, which I believe it is, why do we use different nomenclature? We don't say a cigaretteaholic or a cocaineaholic. So why do you use the word alcoholic? Well, here's the answer. The greatest single obstacle to spreading the truth about alcohol and alcoholism is the 100 billion a year alcoholic beverage industry. The liquor industry spends millions to tell us they are reasonable folks with a social conscience. They disperse huge sums to promote programs encouraging us to drink responsibly. They convince us that we should know when to say when. And when we drink too much, they even remind us to find a designated driver. Neglecting to mention, the one designated driver who stays clear-headed means that the other passengers in the car can drink to oblivion. You've got the designated driver, but then again, you've got three to four designated drunks in the car. Hey, hey, we're the good guys. Look at us. We're the liquor industry. And that's what they'd like us to believe. They want us to believe that their product is legal that they spend millions for alcohol education and prevention programs, and that they do everything in their power to make sure their products don't get in the hands of underage drinkers and teens. Well, don't believe a word of it. The drug alcohol kills roughly 85,000 to 100,000 people in the United States alone each year, over 3 million people worldwide. Just in America alone, that's around 270 deaths every day, or about 10 to 11 every hour that die from alcohol-related causes. These deaths are not limited to panhandling street drunks, to winos, to the people sleeping under the bridge with their brown bags. In fact, their number is tiny. Most of the people who end up dead from this disease, from this drug alcohol, are ordinary people with jobs, good reputations, and are upstanding citizens. 
For big alcohol, money is the name of the game. The beer, wine, and whiskey pushers spend big to keep their products flowing out in virtual flood unimpeded. This in turn results in ubiquitous amounts of profit. The liquor industry's annual gross of $100 billion is twice the size of the annual budget of California and nearly a third of what our country spends annually for its armed forces. The alcohol money game is played with simple rules. Billions earned, hundreds of millions spent on advertising and promotion, tens of millions lavished on politicians, the abusers of alcohol are blamed, then billions more are earned, and the circle goes round and round. Now I'd like to dig a little bit deeper how big alcohol has been fantastic at avoiding taxes. Perhaps just as good as the person in the White House right now, or better. The Reverend Dr. Alpha Estes Brown, an ordained minister with a law degree, a master's degree in business administration, and doctorate, flew to Houston to attend the 1997 Anheuser-Busch shareholder meeting. On the way to the meeting, Dr. Brown stopped at a gas station, where he bought a 40-ounce bottle of King Cobra malt liquor and a 32-ounce bottle of Evian water. He took the bottles with him to a meeting to make a point about alcohol. Water, it turns out, cost $1.39, while the larger bottle of malt liquor was only 99 cents. I personally remember like it was yesterday when I was attending college at Chapman University in Southern California. We go to the gas station called Pinkies and buy King Cobra malt licorice raccoon's piss for 99 cents. Yes, I actually remember buying that exact beverage for 99 cents. But Brown's show and tell was mostly lost on the profit-oriented beer makers and their shareholders. But it has much to teach the rest of us. I personally am wondering, how in the hell does water cost more than alcohol? As I record this podcast, I look out my window in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, and I see numerous peaks covered in snow. I'm pretty sure when that snow melts, it turns into water. There's water everywhere up here. Again, how the hell is alcohol cheaper than water? Well, here's the answer. The answer is that alcohol is not taxed at the same rate as non-alcoholic beverages. Yeah, that Fresca is taxed at a higher rate than that bottle of Fat Tire. Holy shit. The real price of alcohol, the price after accounting for inflation, has actually declined significantly over time due in large part to stable federal, state, and local alcoholic beverage taxes. In 1950, alcohol taxes represented 6.2% of total federal revenues. By 1970, they had fallen to 2.5%, and by 1990, they were less than 0.5% of the total federal budget. Inflation goes up every year, but alcohol is curiously immune to price increases. Between 1950 and 1989, legislators approved only one tax increase on alcohol, and that increase affected only distilled spirits. In 1990, when Congress was trying to figure out how to tighten the reins on a federal budget that was awash in red ink, President George Bush took a hard look at the taxes on booze. Noting that the excise tax for beer, which counts for more than one half of the total annual U.S. consumption of alcohol, had not been raised in nearly 40 years, or since 1951. President Bush proposed a five-fold increase. And polls actually show that 75% of Americans approved of this tax increase, despite usually being tax-raising adverse. As a result, the beer companies were not happy. Higher taxes would mean higher beer prices, which would discourage some people, most notably low-income college and high school students who drink in excess of 5 billion cans of beer a year from buying their brews. So Anheuser-Busch launched a multi-million dollar can-the-beer tax. Petitions, letter-writing materials, and pre-written messages were placed in bars and taverns throughout the country. Members of Congress were bombarded with more than 2.4 million petition signatures and 1.6 million letters. God, that's a lot of mail. With that kind of money and influence being bullied around, the outcome was predictable. 
Congress voted down President Bush's five-fold tax increase on beer and instead approved a watered-down tax that doubled the 1951 tax from about 16 cents on a six-pack to 32 cents. This is an increase of less than three cents a bottle. The tax on wine was increased from three cents to 21 cents a bottle, a seven-fold increase that on the surface may seem like a lot. But by any measures, however, a 21-cent tax on a 750-milliliter bottle with an average cost of several dollars is minimal. I hope you guys found that interesting recovery elevator. I know when I read it, I found that subject matter to be very interesting. And before we hear from Julie, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Julie, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. Julie, how long have you been sober? Today is 92 days. Nice job. Congratulations. It's right around the three-month mark. How's it feel? Pretty good. I didn't think it was possible when I started. I had about 30 days in initially back in November and had to slip up and got kind of compounded that I probably wouldn't be able to do it, but I tried again and I'm rolling with it this time for 92 days. Nice job. There was a a term of value that you said earlier. Didn't think I could do it and we'll get into that later, but that's that's a lot of the trepidation of why many of us don't even try, don't even start this journey of sobriety is the fear that we just don't think we can do it. But before we get any further, Julie, Give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, do you have a family, are you married, and and what are some hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? I'm 35. I'm a nurse. Just recently went back and got my nursing degree last year, and right now I'm back in school working on my bachelor, so I work full-time, go to school, stay pretty busy with that, but I love music, I love going to concerts, anything with animals. I got four fur babies in my life, single, not married, no kids, so... Just kind of trying to do the grown-up thing at this point and catch up on all the lost time. Yeah, I hear you on that one. And what's uh, what's the last concert you saw? Last Friday, I went to Stevie Nicks and the Pretenders. Nice. That's a sounds like a nice throwback concert. Yeah. Yeah, she's still got it going for 68 years old, so wow. I was impressed. That's great. And so let's back it up a little bit here. When did you first realize okay. that you might have a problem with alcohol? I've known for years. Like I said, I started, I really didn't start drinking until I was probably 18, 19, but it seems like right away I was just extreme with it, you know, could never get enough, was never happy unless I was passed out, you know, blacked out, couldn't remember anything, and I went to rehab in 2010, stayed clean for about 18 months, and then I had some other substance abuse going on at that time, but once I got out, um, just kind of gradually started drinking again, and then I was right back where I started, if not worse, you know, before I know it, just needing to drink every single day, lying about it constantly. You know, I can't stand lying. People knew they were calling me out, but I'd make them think they were irrational. And once I got through school and graduated and got a job and realized none of those things are going to make me stop, I knew I had to, you know, really change something or just accept that I was going to be a drunk for the rest of my life. 
Now, did you go to inpatient treatment in 2010 or outpatient treatment? I was inpatient. Yeah, I was there for about three months. At that time, like I said, there was a lot of drug abuse going on too, and the alcohol was probably as equally big of a problem at the time, but it was kind of masked, I think, by the drug abuse, you know, because that was seemed, you know, on the outside, like a more serious issue. Sure. Um, but looking back, I mean, the alcohol was just as bad of an issue, if not worse, at that time. And so to summarize, you went to rehab for other drugs, but, you know, alcohol was still an issue, right? Yes. Now, I had the pleasure to volunteer at Hope Rehab in Thailand in January, and it was interesting that about, so about half the people there were there for alcohol, and the other half were there for drugs. But the people that were there for drugs, within a couple weeks, like a light bulb went off, and they realized that it was alcohol that placed them in that seat. Did you have a similar revelation that, you know, that alcohol was actually a pretty big deal? Yeah, definitely, because, I mean, I was just in total denial up to it. I mean, at the time before I went to rehab, I mean, looking back, I should have known because I was probably drinking close to 30 beers a day or so and about a fifth of Jack Daniels, you know, but it was on top of everything else. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I guess I just kind of dismissed it, you know, like, oh, I'm here for drugs. I need help with the drugs. But before I went to rehab, I spent three days in a psych ward withdrawing, and that definitely – confirmed that part of it was alcohol because that was just terrifying i mean i just didn't know what was going on you know it's like hallucinating really bad and the drugs you know i knew it wasn't like really a physical withdrawal from the drugs and it was the alcohol and i think that was kind of my first realization that the alcohol was a bigger issue than i let myself believe it was now were those hallucinations audio or you hear them or were they visual i mean i don't remember a whole lot it was just so out of it but i mean think it was more visual than anything and just not knowing where I was, you know, I mean, in a psych ward and actually was my roommate was a true schizophrenic. So that just kind of really made everything confusing, you know, and I think the hospital staff and I don't hold anything against them, you know, they were just kind of like, oh, you know, it's a drug addict and weren't really treating it. And it just felt like, you know, I just, it was just like a surreal world almost. I didn't know what was real, what wasn't real. And I think that lasted probably for about 24 to 48 hours. And then when I came out of it, just still, you know, there's like bits and pieces I remember very clear, but a lot of it's just kind of a big blur. Oh, the places the psych ward that and alcohol then, um, will take us. Mm-hmm, yeah. Looking mm-hmm. back, it's just crazy. I'm like, I was in a psych ward, but yeah. it's all part of the story, so. No, it's all part of the story and the places that, yeah, the alcohol will take us. And so you were sober for 18 months. What happened at, at that moment? You know, and I've said on this podcast many times is that a relapse happens way before that first drink. And the signs leading up to it are, you know, looking back, they're very clear. What do you think happened when you relapsed after 18 months of sobriety? I had pretty much, I had planned it, you know, almost in my mind. I just, even though, you know, by that time I realized more than I had could have been before, but I was like, well, you know, I've got it on my system. I can start over, start fresh, and I'll just really, I'll drink like a normal person. And I remember the first time I drank, I was meeting up with some friends, and I was anxious, you know, just because I had known, like, it's going to be like my relapse party. Like I'm going to drink tonight, and and I remember <laughs> was the it first, actual, first was it an actual had, party? I was actually going to a concert with some friends I hadn't seen for a while. I don't remember what the concert was actually, but just kind of like I had known, you know, for about a month. Like, okay, this is going to be the time. Like, I'm going to drink and just see how it goes. And I mean, in that night, I blacked out. I don't remember the concert. Don't remember anything. I think I lost a shoe, and you know, I just woke up pretty defeated you know like well, obviously it's not going to be controlled but it didn't stop me then I continued to drink for the next I think that was said 2012 for about five more years I think that was the uh, descriptor that I felt after I drank for being sober for almost two and a half years in 2010 to 2012 the first night I drank I mean, it was around 2 30 in the morning the gas stations were closed couldn't buy any more alcohol 
but I had hydrogen peroxide and rubbing alcohol next to my computer, and I was Googling which one yeah. would do the least amount of damage. And you're right, I felt I felt pretty defeated the next day, thinking that I was not able to drink like a normal person, and I had been obsessing for the previous six months. Like I mentioned, the relapse happens way before the first drink. It was clear that I, I was obsessing of you know thinking of plans of ways to drink like a normal person, but it just picked yeah. up right where I left off. And, and how did that go for you? So you felt defeated, just like I felt in 2012. I mean, it wasn't controlled drinking after that. Is that what I hear? Yeah. Just little things I would always say, well, when this happens, I'm going to completely stop. Shortly after I had relapsed, I moved into a new place. And my first new genius role was, okay, I'm just not going to drink in the new place. And that was broken the first day, you know, and just I kept always, I would always set these new things. Well, when this happens, I'll just quit. No plan on how I was going to quit or why. It was just, well, I'll just quit because, you know, I'm moving and I'm going to school and graduating and this, I mean, nothing ever worked. And then when it didn't work, I think I was more defeated. So I would just fall deeper into it, kind of abandon more hope every time it didn't happen. Yeah, when we feel defeated, we instantly start to attack ourselves. The self-loathing coupled with the addictive properties of alcohol and the damage that that does is just brutal. Would you find yourself beating yeah. yourself up after those occasions? Yeah, every day. I mean, I just remember every you know night I'd be drinking and I would just be sitting there and thinking the same thoughts like, why? You know, I don't have to do this. I don't have to feel like this. And I'd be so excited thinking, okay, tomorrow is going to be the day I'm going to stop. You know, I don't have to do this anymore. And then the next day, I mean, it was just a broken record, you know, thinking, why am I doing this? I don't have to. Waking up, feeling terrible, hungover, angry, you know, bitter, just because I was so disappointed in myself. And then just, just couldn't stop, couldn't break the cycle. You know, it was just the same thoughts every day of, I'm not going to, I don't have to, and then why? <laughs> you know, mm. and just yeah, failed right promises day. that just add up mm -hmm. and are just absolutely debilitating. Uh, you know, psychologically to a person, including myself, I know that firsthand. And, and was there like a rock bottom moment 92 days ago? Or is it, it more just like being fed up and sick and tired of being sick and tired? Mainly just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had really got to the point that I was like bargaining with myself what I was going to do once I lost my nursing license. You know, so instead of thinking, I'm going to quit. I had just kind of completely flipped the script and said, okay, well, what's the plan B? Because it's what it's going to be. You're just going to drink. It's going to catch up to you. I mean, I never was arrested, um, never, no DUIs or anything like that. But I knew, with, you know, the longer it went, the more it progressed. And now I'm working in the medical field and it's just, they're going to call me out. You know, the too much caffeine excuse isn't going to work. You know, everything I, everything I have now is kind of like a, my victory story, you know, for what I went through back, you know, with the drugs and the alcohol in 2010. And it's like, well, you're going to lose that. So, and I just realized how, like, how crazy that was. Like, why are you even thinking about that when just try to quit? So that's when I really decided I was going to make a serious attempt, more so that I could justify to myself that I had tried. You know, and then when everything was gone, it's like, well, you did try, and there's no other way, basically. Interesting. So, so how did you do it 92 days ago? I just kind of started with the podcast. I felt like, you know, really for the first few days, I was just kind of indifferent to it because, I mean, I could never really get a day prior to that, but I was just kind of going, you're like, well, I'm going to mess it up in a few days anyway, so just keep going, see how long you can go. And then, like I said, I had about 37 days in, and I was feeling really good on top of the world, and I had went Christmas shopping with my brother, and I hadn't told anybody at that point, you know, I'm not drinking, because it was obvious it was a problem, but I would, you know, deny it till I was blue in the face. And up until the point that I sat down at the table, it's like, I'm ordering water, I'm ordering water. And then he ordered a glass of wine, just not knowing. And I just immediately was like, you know, 
Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, just I couldn't even stop myself. And I was so mad because I didn't want it. I didn't enjoy it. And, you know, all I had to do was tell him, hey, I'm not drinking. And he would have been 100% supportive. But And that was what I did the second time, you know, once I had those two glasses and started over. But then I sent a text to all of my, you know, my immediate family and said, look, I'm not drinking. Like, I can't. I know it's a problem. And it's going to be indefinite, you know, because I think I had said stuff before, you know, just kind of like, oh, I'm cutting back. But I said, you know, this is indefinite. I'm not drinking, and I just want you to know so that nobody's uncomfortable here. So mm-hmm. after you had the, those those two Sauvignon Blancs, then you sent a text to your family and loved ones. Was it the day after? It was about a week later because that was actually on um, December 21st was actually the day that I had the two glasses, and it was right around Christmas. And I was like, you know, I don't want to – make anything awkward for the holiday. So it was actually New Year's Day is when I sent them the text. So I had about a little over a week back in at that point. Gotcha. Now, it wasn't until I started to do the same thing that Julie did for myself in 2014 that rubber started to hit the road. It was creating that accountability, and I rode that accountability wave all the way to February 2015 when I started the podcast. I found that accountability was just pivotal to my sobriety. And it wasn't until I told my mom, my dad, my brother had like serious conversations, not just not just quick conversations, but in person, long conversations filled with tears. And then I texted my fantasy football league, which are, you know, my best friends. And I, I, you know, these people were just checking up on me after that. And I realized that accountability was huge. And how did accountability play a role in your sobriety? It has been huge. Um, Like I said, they just they were all accepting and supportive as I knew they would be. And I had it kind of hyped up in my head that it was going to be this huge big deal and you know I mean they were just said you know good you know like it was no secret that I drank too much and you know it just made me feel better because the first few times you know we went out to eat or something and it's like Julie's not drinking alcohol and it because before I had told them on my first um, 30 days it was such a big deal and I'm like this is crazy number one that it's so earth shattering you know that I'm ordering a water like everybody can't stop talking about it but um, I just didn't want anybody, you know, to every time I have to be like, oh, you're still not drinking, you're still not drinking. So I, so I just said, look, I'm not, and you don't need to ask me because I'm not. So and like I said, they've been super supportive. I've told all my friends. I said, I'm lucky right now. I mean, I'm staying so busy with work and school that I haven't been in a whole lot of situations where I've been uncomfortable, but just trying to take it one situation at a time more than anything. So how did those conversations go with your friends and family? I know listeners are, are curious of, of how to do that and how to approach those people and, and what do you actually say? What did it look like for you? I did it in a little bit of a sissy manner where I sent a big, long, drawn-out text immediately before I went into work and then hit send because I knew I can't take my phone into work. So I was like, well, I'll send it now. And now if I think about it, I won't have to respond. And then when I came out, you know, I mean, I just basically said to start it out, you know, I just want you to know I'm not drinking. I know it's an issue. It has been. I can't do it normal. You know, there's lots of things I want to accomplish this year. I'm in school. I want to hopefully get my master's, and none of those things are going to be possible. You know, and then when I got up to my car after work, and it was all the positive responses, and I'm still not being completely honest about how bad it was, you know, because my mom and dad will say stuff, and I know part of me in the back of my mind is I'm not being completely open because I'm thinking, well, what if I decide to say, you know, screw it, and I'm going to go back to drinking. I don't want them trying to hold me accountable, but I know I'm past that point right now, but... I'm just trying to slowly be more open about it. It's not something I like to talk about, especially with my family. So I just, you know, I cause them a lot of pain. You know, I have to admit that I lied every time I saw them pretty much. You know, no, I'm not drinking. I'm not going to drink when I go home, and there's no alcohol in my house. And that's just really exhausting all of in itself. But they don't really say much to me now. You know, they're just like, you know, ask me. I'm not drinking, and, 
just kind of encouraged me along the way and just kind of opening up about it more and more, um, the more confidence I get that I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, and, and Julie, I imagine it feels good because I know it felt really good for me. After I had those conversations, I felt better. I, I felt like I came clean, honesty, more importantly for myself, but I was also honest with my loved ones, and I told them that I was drinking on the Lake Powell houseboat trip where nobody thought I was drinking, and I had had beers and empty cans hidden in strategic places all over the boat. It felt good to come clean with that stuff. Did you experience the same feeling? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a weight lift off my shoulders. I spent a lot of time at my mom's house in the summer because she has a pool, and, you know, I'd be drinking and trying to hide how much I was drinking. I would stash extra bottles in my bag, you know, so they wouldn't see me drinking them, and just but just the mental exhaustion of trying to keep it up and hide it, and it's it too much work, <laughs> you know. I couldn't even keep up with myself, and, you know, I don't think I was really fooling anybody. I thought I was, you know, but they knew deep down. You know, it was always like I said, well, I only drink like this, you know, when I'm here. I only drink at the pool like this. And I said it broke my heart every time I lied because I don't like lying. But, you know, you'll do anything to protect, you know, your addiction or what you're trying to do in that in that moment. So. So you created accountability. You told your friends, your family, your loved ones, your goals of not drinking. What else did you do to help get you 92 days of sobriety? Oh, actually, my best friend, she lives in California. But at the time that I started, she had close to a year. So she's kind of been my lifeline through it all if anybody would have guessed the two of us out of anybody would be sober you know five or six years ago they probably would have dropped dead but she's been a huge source of support and like I said I'm just I'm reading a lot this naked mind I really like that book I'm not going to AA I keep thinking I should I probably will but I am pretty busy but what I'm doing right now is working you know just trying to really change my mindset more than anything to know I can't be happy without it you know I do feel a lot more positive just in my day-to-day approach to things, you know, because I don't have that clouded mind of hungover and angry and so mainly just a podcast and a reading are probably my two biggest resources right now. What other recovery books have you read? Uh, Blackout. Uh, I think that was Sarah Chiboli read that one. Um, a lot of stuff by Brene Brown. Some some it's not even necessarily alcohol-related, but more just kind of, you know, internal self-help, you mm-hmm. know, to get over the reasons why I was drinking so much, so... And this Naked Mind by Any Grace is a huge one for me. uh, My favorite recovery books are going to be that one and Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum. But this Naked Mind, I I could tell within a chapter or two, I was like, wow, this this woman has never set foot in an AA meeting. But I think that gave her an advantage in writing that book. It's it's Mm -hmm. a totally different approach. And basically, it, it, it focuses on having a shift in thinking. And, and, you know, at the end of the book, you're supposed to look at alcohol and, and just revolt in your mouth and think like, oh, my God, why would I want to ingest this poison? It's like drinking battery acid. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting approach. Have you found that similar to you? Yeah, definitely, because um, one of the things I was really worried about um, was going to concerts. Like I said, I love going to concerts. And my first couple that I went to, I just had pretty much, again, in my head, planned that I was going to drink. Like, I can't do it. And I just kind of had to really reel myself back, like, just stop, you know, you'll be fine. And now I've been to three concerts since all this started, and just really haven't had the desire. I mean, I just, like, I smell it, and um, even at the Stevie Nicks concert, there was a bunch of drunk people around me. And just, I felt lucky, you know, that I was able to actually watch the show, enjoy the show, and not be worried about, you know, holding a bunch of drinks or trying to go get more drinks or go to the bathroom. And, I mean, as far as the cravings, I really haven't had that many this last time around, and I know that they'll come, but... I'm just kind of said, trying to take it one thing at a time. Sure. Get in my head and think, well, I want to drink at this event or I want to drink at this event. And I just try to tell myself, you know, worry about it when it gets here. Just 
I'm yeah, not drinking you're not today. Even and, at those events yet. Yeah. And so what do you do when those cravings do come? Mainly try to ignore them. Like I've learned that they will pass. Said usually I just try to distract myself, pop in a podcast or read, take my dogs for a walk. But usually, I mean, within less than an hour, and you know, usually even less than that, 20 minutes or so, I can get them out and forget that I even want to drink. Now, Instead listeners, cravings have a lifespan of really, it's rare that they're over 20 minutes. And I remember my first time to Las Vegas in sobriety, I was in the hotel lobby. And just you know, all the old memories of being in Las Vegas and drinking, I actually popped in my own podcast and just waited for 20 minutes. <laughs> and yep. the craving passed. And I was like, wow, this thing works. This is awesome. And, and walk me through mentally, spiritually, and physically how you felt You know, your first week, your first month of sobriety. So the first week, I think I was just kind of apprehensive because I just thought it was something I was doing to say that I had did it. You know, So I was like, well, I'll be drinking here eventually. So the first week, I was just pretty much indifferent to the whole thing. And then once I got a month, I started feeling really good, you know, thinking, okay, there's a chance I can actually do this. The world's still turning. I'm still breathing. You know, it's obviously not a requirement for life, but I drink every day. And um, now just as every day goes on, I just get more confidence and determination that I'm actually going to do this. I think um, in the past, I'd kind of always looked at it as, well, I'm just going to quit drinking until I can get myself together. And now it's more kind of, I'm going to quit drinking for life. You know, this is not something short term. I don't ever want to have another drink again. And that kind of really helps me stay focused. Now, what advice would you give to your younger self? Gosh, so much. I think just, you know, there is a price you pay for everything. I mean, I did have some good times. I'm not going to say it was all bad. But, you know, looking back, a lot of people tried to intervene when I was younger. And just, you know, you don't know everything, I guess. And you are going to pay for it. You know, I was 35 you know, pretty much working dead-end jobs. And I finally went back to nursing school. And it's not fun and games forever. No, it's definitely not. I had to realize that the hard way also. And I learned a lot about myself in early sobriety especially. And what have you learned about yourself in these past 92 days? Um, just more than anything that I wasn't ever really living in reality. You know, I mean, I wasn't facing anything. I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just kind of going through the motions. I mean, looking back, I really don't know how I made it to nursing school because I feel like I was just so checked out you know I was just between drinking and recovering I just kind of like I said just going through the motions and doing what I had to do but now I just feel like you know if I put myself into the moment and actually experience what's happening or what I'm feeling just everything's fine you know I think I just kind of had a doomsday um, attitude approach before that you know I can't I can't nothing's gonna you know I'm gonna die if I do this and it's like no I'm still here and it is possible, you know, people do live sober without any substance, and I mean, I just feel a lot better. I'm learning that I feel so much better and have more confidence in myself other than just not drinking, you know, just having a clear mind. It sounds like you're almost a little surprised with yourself, pleasantly surprised with yourself that you made it this far. Yeah, because I mean, like I said, I really just, I didn't think it was possible. I was just saying, you know, because I started thinking, okay, I'm going to lose everything, and this was just like, well, you have to be able to say that you tried you know so it's like well all options have been exhausted and yes this is what it is just you know accept it but I'm way past that thinking now like I said I'm not thinking now it's like I can do this and I'm going to do it because I just don't I don't want to go back to that when you say accept it what does that what does that mean accept what that I was just going to have to drink for the rest of my life and I mean I would have lost my nursing license that was a big thing and just accepting like well you know it is you are going to lose it so you better get back to ready to go back to waiting tables for the rest of your life because just 
professional, you know, having a career as I want to work out. It sounds like you had some serious conversations yeah. with yourself and really thought about what would happen practically. Is it's just a matter of time mm-hmm. before you you lose your your nursing license. You, before we hit record button, you were saying that your hands would be shaking while administering shots. And then you tell people mm-hmm. that, oh, I've had, I've had too much caffeine today, but it's really just a matter of time. And it sounds like you had these serious conversations with yourself and came to just accept the fact that, look, if, if, if I don't make some change in my life, then it's, it's not going to go well. Exactly. For goodness sake, I've always been, you know, a lie and hide it as much as I can, but I knew, you know, time was running out at this point. And I mean, I was, I was already mourning, losing, you know, everything I'd got and the conversations that I have in my head are so just in depth and it's like that's something else I've learned in recovery you know it's talking about it helps so much like I need to get out of my head <laughs> stop trying to mm-hmm. get the answers from myself you know so if I'm hearing you um, correctly you got honest with yourself you got honest with others you created accountability you got out of your own head and then you got sober those are some some big value bombs right there exactly yeah and, and um, you know, what are some rules that you live by in sobriety that you've developed in these last 92 days? Just that, well, probably the biggest one is the attitude is everything. You know, how I, how I go into something, if I think it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad. If I think, you know, I can use it as an experience to learn, then I take it, you know, just my approach. Because before I just always looked at everything, glass half empty, it can't be done, it's going to suck, you know, I'm just. And uh, even with my job at work, you know, before when I was drinking, I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself as a nurse or anything, you know, and now just having, being able to go into it, knowing that nobody knows everything right out the gate and I'm learning and I'm doing the best I can and all the little things really add up. And what's on your bucket list in sobriety? What do you want to achieve in this new life that you've been given? I'm just really trying to get out of my comfort zone. I'm signing up for the Bozeman retreat in August, so that'll be something I'm really looking forward to. I'd like to get in to try, you know, more meditation and yoga. All those things are on my list, but I found out I was kind of beating myself up before. It's like, well, you're not meditating and running and doing yoga and journaling every day, so, you know, you suck at recovery. You can't do this, but <laughs> just trying to take it, you know, like things will come naturally as I go. What I'm doing now is working, so just try not to do it all in one quick sweep. Yeah, you don't have to do it all at once. You can slowly add things to your recovery portfolio, which is exactly what I did, and I could still continue to add things to my recovery portfolio. Yeah, I highly encourage you to sign up for the retreat in August. I look forward to meeting you in person. We're going to cover meditation. We're going to cover yoga. We're going to cover diet, health, nutrition, exercise, um, you know, how to get out of your head. It's going to be really, really fun. A uh, lot of beautiful stars in Bozeman, Montana. There's going to be campfires. It's going to be really cool, and uh, I hope you make it. And, and Julie, we have reached – Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be great. And, and we have reached the rapid-fire round, if you could answer these questions – Within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Number one, uh, Julie, what was your worst memory from drinking? Probably definitely withdrawing in the psych ward. It's not something I ever want to repeat. Yeah, that sounds brutal. I had audio yeah. hallucinations when coming back from Spain. I was listening to the Braveheart soundtrack um, in my head for like three weeks because I would come home from the bar shit-faced blacked out and I'd go to bed I'd pre- press play on this iPod um, and I heard that soundtrack for three weeks after quitting not quitting yeah. drinking but it was brutal and next yeah. question we've all heard of the aha moment did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking I think I had many but more it was just an oh shit moment every single day you know 
the night before I was sure I was like, okay, this is it. I got it. I'm not going to do this again. And then to be right back, you know, it was just kind of every day was a new awakening, you know, like, okay, I obviously can't stop. None of this is going to work. And something serious really has to change. Daily. Oh shit. Moments are exhausting. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. I hear you there. And question number three, Julie, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward with 92 days? How are we going to get day 93, 94, and possibly 100? I'm just going to kind of keep uh, staying active. I love the Cafe RE Facebook group. Keep reading. Keep listening to podcasts. The more things I do, the more events I get through without alcohol, the more it builds my confidence. And just to keep reminding myself that it's a way of life that is possible for me. I just keep my focus. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Recovery Elevator is definitely number one, that and the um, Facebook group, because I'm kind of naturally a private person. I don't like a lot of people close to me knowing what's going on, so it's just kind of been a really good format, you know, for me to get my thoughts out and get some feedback without feeling like I'm being judged too much, you know, or, oh, crap, I don't want this person to know this, Mm -hmm. and just kind of baby steps to telling my story. Nice, and in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, Julie? I think just, you know, that film, don't feel like you have to do it all at once, you know, because that's something that somebody told me back when I was in rehab that, you know, things will come as they come. If what you're doing today is contributing to what your end goal is and it's working, just keep going and the next thing will happen as it's supposed to. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or think about getting sober? Just take the first step, you know, even if you think you can't do it, even if you think it's a crapshoot, just start you know you never know what will happen and worry about tomorrow when it gets here and just do what you can today to stay sober worry about tomorrow when it gets here that's been huge for me I mean just one day at a time I don't really just apply that to my recovery I apply that to everything because it's I have to be in the moment because nothing matters tomorrow it's not even here yet and before we depart Julie give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line you might be an alcoholic if you absolutely loathe the existence of everybody else in the gas station because they're about to witness you by alcohol and you just know in your head that they know what you're about to do and that it's not going to be, you know, they all know that you're not going to do it normally. Yeah, I would find myself just, you know, hating people being there. Like there's no, the only reason they're here is to torment me right now, not to buy gas, you know, not to get bread. (laughs) They're here to shame me basically and I realized how irrational that was. I've been at the gas station before 10 a.m. buying my boxes of wine, thinking the exact same mm-hmm. thing. I'm like, God, why, why are you here right now? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be at work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that, that classifies. That's a great one. So, Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. The liquor industry spends $1.8 billion a year telling us how beer, wine, and distilled spirits will enhance our sex lives to reduce our cares and woes and make our boring lives more interesting. These messages are intended to reach anyone likely to pick up a bottle of beer, a glass of wine, or a drink made with hard liquor. And that includes millions of underage drinkers. In fact, drinkers under age 21 consume an estimated 10% of all the alcohol consumed in this country. In 1999, during the Super Bowl, and I remember watching this game, I was only 17 years old, seven of the 10 top-rated ads were Budweiser plugs featuring creatures such as lizards, frogs, mice, and dogs, all peddling beer. Most kids, including myself, love lizards, frogs, dogs, well, not so much mice, but you get the point. Kids love these ads. I loved those ads. Ten years later, I felt duped, totally and completely duped by alcohol. 
In fact, I had the pleasure to do a TEDx talk on April 8th in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, and that was a title of the talk. I was duped by alcohol. I remember motivational speakers coming to our school and saying, don't do crack, don't do cocaine, don't do meth, don't do heroin. But as far as I looked, left, right, TV, in the movies, as long as I was the age of 21, everything should be just fine. However, that was not the case. I never heard any reference that alcohol could be as dangerous as it was. And I want to remind you guys, I want this podcast to be positive and uplifting. However, these are real-world current events that directly involve us. So I find it imperative that I share this information with you guys. Okay, Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 